Well, the uh, scripture for this morning comes from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we'll be looking at the first four verses, but, uh, but we will read on through verse 8. It's, a, it's the first of a, of a two-parter. Uh, the, uh, the first eight verses re- re- uh, come here really as a unit, and, uh, and so we'll look at uh, verses 1 through 4 this morning, and Lord willing, next week. Uh, 5 through 8. So either just listen or read along to this portion of God's Word. This is Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that your words may be justified, that you may be justified in your words, and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, their condemnation is just. I'm not sure if uh, if, if all of us can attest to have, to have seen this, but uh, I know that uh, over the course of my life here and there, in, in high school, in college, and, and uh, later in life as well, as you, as you observe people around you, uh, I can think of several examples of folk uh, who were raised with with all kinds of advantages, uh, maybe advantages that uh, that I did not enjoy uh, in in my life, that uh, and and lots of other folk might not have. I'm thinking of of um, kids who had either wealthy parents or parents that uh, were very helpful and supportive, or that paid for college outright, and and all kinds of advantages either either in their family life or financially or socially or or all of those things and yet uh, the child did not take advantage of any of those things you know they they didn't study in college or they squandered the money that they were given or they didn't make the most of a really stable and helpful family life and sort of made a train wreck of their own lives. Uh, you could probably think of all kinds of people that, that might fall into those categories as well. And it's a shame to see from the outside because you look at it and say, you had so many advantages over so many other people, and yet you just threw it all away. Why, why would you do that? Thought of that example as we look at what Paul is addressing here at the beginning of chapter 3, and that's essentially what he's saying about Jews that do not uh, repent and believe and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and, and know the free gift of salvation. You have all these advantages. 
And yet, you're not taking advantage, really, of any of them. You're not putting them into use. You're just uh, squandering them. And so, uh, we'll, we'll see how today and uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, Paul points out that, that the, the Jews who do not take advantage of the, the blessings of knowing the covenant and the scriptures and even believers in church who don't take advantage of all of the blessings of, of hearing the word opened and being among believers and knowing the promises of God, those who don't take advantage of those things, are, are sa- it's sad and it's a shame, but it doesn't cancel out the value of the promises themselves, that the promises are still true, even if people don't take hold of them. And yet they are there so that we might take hold of them and know the blessing of salvation. Well, let's see this as we work our way through. First, great privileges in verses 1 and 2. Now, last week we looked at verses 25 through 29 of, of chapter 2 as we closed out that chapter. And there Paul concluded that focus of the larger section, 17 through 29, and spoke of the false confidence that Jews had placed in their privilege as God's chosen people their possession of the law, and their reliance on the ritual of circumcision. Paul addressed objections that a religious Jew might offer to what he's been saying in chapter 2. The Jews claimed special status as God's chosen people who were set apart from Gentile sinners. They also had been given circumcision, which, which also set them apart. And they claimed privilege before God. And some even believed, as we saw, that circumcision automatically saved the person who received it. But Paul pointed out that these outward things were of no advantage when facing God's judgment because these Jews had had failed to, to take hold of internally the blessings that these pointed to. They did not respond with repentance and faith and sadly just relied on the outward things of religion rather than internally responding in faith. In fact, he pointed out they do not keep the law that they have. And sadly, they are neither humbled nor repentant, but instead boast of their knowledge about God and yet actually fail to pursue God personally. They are self-righteous and and self-deceived. They also relied on on the outward ritual of circumcision without having the faith that it called for in the covenant which was given to Abraham and his faith served as an example. These Jews then, and all self-righteous and and outward religion-trusting souls, are still under the wrath of God just as much as Gentile and pagan unbelievers out in the world. In fact, Paul noted, Gentiles who repent and believe are among the true Jews, true Israelites. And Jews who fail to respond in faith are not really Jews. They rely merely on on empty ritual and ethnicity and tradition. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul continues to address the objections of a a self-righteous Jew might have with what he said in verses one through four we'll look today uh, which we'll look at today paul will respond to objections to his teaching 
It's, uh, that it speaks against God's covenant and the privileges of Jews under it in having God's law. Yet Paul will respond that these objections are untrue. The unbelief of Jews does not negate the covenant or the word of God or the promises of God simply because they fail to take hold of them. Now we begin with verses 1 and 2 where Paul asks answers uh, or, or rather answers hypothetical questions a self-righteous Jew might, uh, might ask him after reading the letter so far. And you'll remember that we've noted, uh, we noted last week, and I think the week before that, that, uh, that we were reminded that Paul himself, before his, his conversion, was a self-righteous Pharisee. Uh, and, uh, and so these objections that are offered aren't straw men, and they aren't hypothetical. Paul can just go back to his before Christian life and say, how would I have objected to what I'm saying? So it's uh, saved Paul arguing with unsaved Paul from his past. And so what he's putting forward is, is really a, a, an honest response of how a self-righteous Jew might respond to these arguments because Paul has been in their shoes. At the end of chapter 2, he said to to a fellow Jew uh, there, this hypothetical Jew he's speaking to, that you are mistaken if you think that relying on outward things such as ethnic heritage, rituals, uh, possessing scripture and circumcision will make you right with God. He was saying that if there is no internal change, no faith and repentance, no obvious fruit, no circumcision of the heart, then you are under God's wrath. And your confidence is false and empty. Well, such a person might argue back that Paul, in teaching all of these things, is saying that the scriptures and circumcision and even God's covenant with the Jews are totally without value, that he's trashing it all, and that these promises that, that are found in them are not even true. But Paul responds that that kind of objection is not valid. That is not what he's saying. And those objections do not hold up. He begins in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? This is what someone else might argue. And he responds, great in every respect. And what he's said in chapter 2, Paul is not at all speaking against the blessings that the Jews have enjoyed for so long. And he's not at all speaking against the ordinance of circumcision that God had given the Jews. These things were indeed an advantage and a benefit as they were wonderful gifts God gave to point them to their need of repentance and faith, their need of God's grace and mercy, their need of the Messiah, ultimately. They were good things. In Romans 9... Paul will go on to list some of the advantages of being a Jew. He says there, Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and from whom the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. They had all of those wonderful advantages that the Gentile nations did not have. 
God called them out of the world and set them apart and gave them all of these wonderful things. They gave, he gave them the worship of God at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the temple and the tabernacle. He gave them circumcision. He gave them promises uh, through Abraham and his descendants, as we saw last week. He gave them the word of God through so many prophets. And so all of these things were pointing to the offer of salvation. And the salvation itself was pictured in, in their worship and described in the word of God. Circumcision itself pointed them to the faith of Abraham and the blessings of God that are part of being the co- in the covenant people. But they, again, had to have the faith of Abraham and respond rightly to the gospel as it was displayed in those things. The covenant called on the, the people to give a proper response to what they saw and heard, and that is faith and repentance and obedience to follow. Simply possessing the law, possessing circumcision, having the, the worship before you, as good as those things were, did not automatically convey salvation. And Paul, Paul says here of the advantages of being a Jew, he says, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now he says first here, uh, but uh, that's not the beginning of a numbered list. Um, other translations put it uh, uh, more like chiefly or primarily, and I think that's the point here. So Paul is saying that the primary or greatest way in which the Jews had, had privilege was that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And this term oracles is used in both the Old and New Testaments and refers to a divine utterance or divine speaking. In God's revelation, he gives the word of God. He did that through the, the work of the Holy Spirit to give them the very word of God. And the meaning is that as he gave him the word, the Old Testament scriptures, they were including promises and great blessings because God was speaking to them. As we sing in Psalm 147, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. And as we read in Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call to him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? That there is great privilege here. God gave his word to them. He gave the Bible to them, his inherent, inerrant word. And it was written down for their blessing. And God, in his word, revealed himself. Revealed things about themselves and ourselves. Revealed our need. And revealed the offer of salvation. There's a reminder here that it's easy to take for granted the blessing of having God's word. Especially in our culture, we have easy access to it. We have copies of it in our own language before us right now. We have copies in our homes. We have copies on our cell phones. We have copies on our computers. We have 
such wonderful access to the Word of God. We ought not to ever take take uh, that for granted. There are people out in the world who who are wondering if if God could say anything. Would would He speak? Could we hear from God? And the answer is, well, we've already heard from God. He's given us a book that reveals so much about himself in the world and salvation. And so let us not take the word for granted. But even if Israel appreciated the word, they did not apply it. And so they may have had it, but sadly they did not do what it pointed to. So many of them simply listened to it, but not, did, did not internalize it. So may we not only give it the attention it deserves and the appreciation it deserves, but also the application that it deserves. We sing in Psalm 119, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. And Psalm 119 is full of of verses like that, uh, speaking not only of of getting to know God's word, but internalizing it and praying for its application to our lives and hearts and actions. And so it is not merely to be learned, but is to be applied. Sadly, So many of the Jews thought that mere possession of the scriptures or practice of the rituals made them right with God. And they missed the point. They failed to pursue relationship with him by his grace as that is presented in the gospel. As Paul wrote to a pastor, Timothy, later on, whose mother and grandmother taught him God's word in his youth, he says there in 2 Timothy 3, from childhood, You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. And so Timothy heard the word, but he needed to respond in faith to that word, in faith in Jesus Christ. There is value in knowing it, knowing the word of God, But its greatest value comes when we use it to come to know the God who gave it to us and the Savior who is revealed in it and pursue that relationship with Him by faith alone. My friend John Calvin writes, Although we may read Holy Scripture, we will wander and stray unless we follow the teaching given here. We must use it to discover all about Jesus Christ and put our trust in him. The same is true as he speaks to the Jews of circumcision. As we saw last week, the Jews took the ritual act as producing salvation automatically. They made no application of its true intention to point to faith and repentance. And we noted last week as well that we have baptism as the replacement covenant sign of circumcision the sign of belonging to God's people. But that as well can be taken in the wrong way, as if the sacrament magically bestows salvation. And and we explored that a little bit in both the, uh, the explanation of baptism and the sermon itself last week. 
Such a belief that it is automatic and done by the sacrament itself is not biblical and it's not true. Rather, the sacrament calls on us to think of what is symbolized in it and to take hold of the promises of salvation offered and illustrated in the sacrament and to do that by trusting faith in Christ alone. As the larger catechism number 167 puts it, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it. The Jews had privileges, and they had privileges for most most of human history that no other people had. Yet sadly, many among them did not use those privileges rightly. And some, sadly, some people who have the blessing of having grown up in the church and of hearing the scriptures and of seeing the sacraments don't apply it rightly, don't take those things to heart, don't consider them, those things seriously, or in some cases reject it outright. And that is sad. It is profoundly and heartbreakingly sad. But as Paul will go on to prove here, That does not mean that the gospel promises or scripture or the sacraments or any of these things given by God are broken or incorrect at all. No, those things are still valuable and true and sound offers, even if people do not take advantage of those promises. Well, second, unbelief does not nullify God's word and promises in 3 and 4. And here Paul responds to the accusation uh, that if Paul's argument is true, then lots and lots of Jews are shown to be unbelievers as they never turned in faith and repentance and trusted in God uh, through the, uh, the, uh, and trusted rather in the outward things instead. So they say, and they're getting that, that right, Paul is saying, if you've only trusted in the outward things, then all kinds of Jews have been unfaithful because Lots of Jews would know that it was just outward and not internally taken hold of. And so they would say, if that's true, then this nullifies, this cancels all the promises of God and God's faithfulness to Israel. He's saying that God's promises must not be true if all of these Jews go unsaved under what you're saying, Paul. He says, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Now, Paul replies very strongly that Israel's unbelief absolutely does not nullify God's faithfulness to his covenant promises given in his word. Salvation was never guaranteed to every Jew, nor is it guaranteed to every person who now is baptized or grew up in church. It is not something that automatically saves by doing this religious activity. The covenant promises are conditional. They come with the call to repent and trust in the Messiah. When folk fail to do this, it is not because the covenant has failed. It is because people have failed to embrace Christ by faith, the failure is theirs. It is not the failure of the covenant itself. 
As was read earlier, the author of Hebrews writes similarly of the unbelief of many in the Exodus generation of Israel. And their failure to believe stands as a warning that we might learn from them. In Hebrews 4, I'll just take a smaller section of what Doug read earlier. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Again, he fixes a certain day today, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, the promises are true. God's word is true. God promised salvation by faith and repentance in these promises of the gospel displayed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And those things are true promises. Genesis 15 and 6 tells us that Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And so there is that wonderful example that trusting faith alone in God and his promises, by doing that, God will impute or count righteousness you, a sinner, have not earned and set you apart and save you. Leviticus 17 and 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so all of those Old Testament sacrifices demonstrated that God will put the guilt and wrath due to you for your sins on a substitute, on someone else. The animals pictured the promise of the coming Christ. And so there was forgiveness by faith alone in the God who supplied those sacrifices. And uh, later on in Romans Uh, which I can say pretty frequently here at this point. Later on in Romans, Paul will expand on this idea. And he writes in chapter 4, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are these wonderful gospel promises in the Old Testament and the New. And what folk in the Old Testament or or folk today or down through the ages fail to take hold of the promise as offered That does not mean that the promise was not valid. It means that they failed to take hold of it and trust in Christ. That does not invalidate the covenant promises. Uh, My old professor uh, from Geneva, Dan Doriani, uh, gives this example in his commentary. And he says, if you have a reliable, solid, uh, working car, but don't put gas in it, You can't rightly claim that the car is defective when it doesn't move. The car is designed to operate with fuel. And then Doriani writes, Likewise, God designed the covenant to operate through faith. 
And so it is not the fault of the covenant. There is nothing broken about the covenant when we fail to take hold of Christ by faith because that is how the covenant works. Paul says in our verse 3 that to charge that the unbelief nullifies God's faithfulness to the covenant is outrageous, actually. He says, may it never be. And in the Greek, this term is very strong. The idea of impossible or or absolutely not with an exclamation point. He then adds, rather, let God be found true, throw every man a liar. Notice the contrast there between God's faithfulness to his covenant promises in verse 3 and Israel's unfaithfulness and lack of trust and repentance that's called for in the covenant. God, unlike people, is always true to his word. It's not hard to see that people are not. Uh, the scripture makes it clear that we are sinners, that we are liars. Uh, Psalm nine, or 5, verse 9, There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And so we know that, uh, that men lie. Human beings lie. But God, by contrast, is always true and always keeps the promises that he has made, and always is true to the promise that he offers. Proverbs 30 and 5 says, Every word of God proves true. 1 Peter 1 says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of God, or but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians one and twenty, Paul says, All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Paul then adds a quotation from Psalm fifty one, verse four, to support his statement. As it is written that you may be judged, justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Well, that's uh, that's actually a really interesting choice of text because it comes Uh, from David's psalm of repentance after his sins of adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. The Lord in his grace, you'll recall, forgave David, but there would be lasting consequences from his sin. Uh, You may recall from 2 Samuel 12, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. And he says elsewhere in that chapter, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. The Lord is righteous and just in his judgments and his bringing correction even on those that he saves and loves. Commentator Douglas Moo writes, Paul quotes a verse expressing the faithfulness of God when he judges sin because the truthfulness of God includes this negative aspect of God's faithfulness to his word. God is equally faithful when he judges people's sin and when he fulfills his promises. We read of this in in, uh, in, in Psalm 119, 
Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And there's that whole section in Hebrews chapter 12 where the believer is corrected and and receives, uh, receives discipline from the Lord, and that is done out of love. And in a larger sense, God was true, and I think this is part of the bigger point that that Paul is making here. He was true to his promises. When people take hold of the Messiah by faith and are saved, and God is true to his promises when people are, are experiencing God's wrath due to their rejection of those promises. He is true to those promises in both senses. We read in Nehemiah, Uh, where the exile is explained in brief. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria to this day, However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. And so God was faithful even then to bring about covenant curses upon them when they did not trust in him and when they rejected him. And so God is being faithful when he grants uh, the, the promises of blessing and salvation that are offered but he's also being true and just, and, and he is keeping his promises when covenant curses or chastisement is brought as well. Now, there are several passages where this, uh, this is shown in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 11 is one of those places. Uh, God promises there many blessings if they will love the Lord and, and uh, serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In uh, Deuteronomy 11 and 13. And then he promises all kinds of blessings. And then in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 11 he says. Beware that your hearts are not deceived. And that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. For the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord is giving you. And so God is faithful to grant the blessings of the covenant when it's taken hold of by faith and to bring curses and chastisement and correction when those promises and those blessings are refused. And so there is the promise of salvation and there is the promise of relationship with God and the blessings of of all those who trust and repent and love the Lord. And yet, there is disaster promised for those who refuse those wonderful promises. As we've seen in chapter 2 and here in chapter 3, reliance on these religious rituals and attendance at worship and family heritage and all of those things alone, without internalizing them in faith and repentance, will not save. They never have and they never will. It is only by trusting faith and repentance in the person and work of Jesus that one is reconciled to God. 
And in the passages we've, we've read, we're aware of what Christ has done. That he is God the Father, or he, he is God the Son, who was sent by God the Father to be the Savior of the world. That he, though being fully beca- God, became also fully man to be our saving substitute. He came and fully obeyed all of God's laws, which we failed to do. And on the cross, he took the wrath of God due to his people for their sins upon himself. He was buried and dead, but on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead, a a living Savior and an accepted sacrifice. And all those who trust in him are reconciled to God, are forgiven of their sins, and are given eternal life. As Paul will say later on in our chapter 3, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And so that is the promise of the gospel, the promise of salvation, the promise of reconciliation with God. And that promise is sure and true. Even though many people, Jew and Gentile, rejected it and reject it still, it is still true. It doesn't matter to the truthfulness of the offer if people reject it. It is still true. And God is truthful to save you if you trust in Jesus Christ from your heart as explained in the Gospel. Notice these firm words of promise in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And so if you trust in him, you will be saved. People and their promises in this life, as we know other people, often prove not to be true, right? We, we all know that. People fall short, people lie, people deceive. People, even if they try sometimes, don't keep their promises. But God always does. And the promises in Scripture are always true. And especially the promise of the gospel, as we take hold of it, is offered to us and is a guaranteed and true offer of salvation. And yet, the other side of that is that if you do not take hold of it, then there is no hope. John, we read in John 3 and 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And so there is this wonderful hope and offer of the true true hope of the gospel. And, And so it is not negated by people who reject it. And so it is true. And it is still true, and it will always be true. So let us take hold of it. And if you have not trusted in Christ, then please do, because this is anyone's only hope. 
Hope and salvation does not come merely in outward religious deeds or your supposed goodness or anything else that you might be counting on. It comes only by God's grace alone in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. And if you have taken hold of him and know that salvation, then rejoice in that God's wonderful gift to you. Rejoice in the word of God that you have taken and internalized by his grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Rejoice in that salvation that is guaranteed to you and that you can live the rest of this life knowing the sureness of that eternal life that is already yours and fellowship with the triune God that is already yours. And so rejoice in those things and praise God for his grace to you. Let's praise. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. And we thank you for the truthfulness of, of the offer of the gospel. We thank you for your word, your inerrant, infallible word, and the gospel that is found there. And we thank you that the offer of the gospel is given to all of us. And sadly, we know that some reject it or some uh, do not pick it up and apply it uh, in their souls with faith and repentance. We pray that, that people would, would, by your grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, be moved to do that. That, that uh, all of us here would take hold of Jesus Christ and know that wonderful gift of salvation by your grace. That people who have heard it among our family and friends and neighbors would also take hold of it that they would let go of anything else that they're trusting in, be that religion or, or a baptism or circumcision or whatever it is that people might, might uh, falsely place hope in, that they would be moved to embrace Jesus Christ and hope only in him and know that guarantee of salvation in the gospel of truth. And we pray that you might be at work in this world, that, that you would be saving many, and bringing many to yourself. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.